Hello, I'm Susie. This is my podcast. Welcome. Here we are at the end of the year. One more rotation around the sun to 2022nd, according to our count. (laughs) I mean, that's random, but that's, you know, when we started counting, we got to count, right? Keep order of things. Otherwise, you know, how would we know where to go? When? You get it. Anyway, that wasn't the point. The point is, hello and welcome. I haven't uploaded for a bit. Um, well, you know, I actually don't need to provide an explanation here, do I? Mm-mm. In this series of episodes, I'm going to talk a little bit about media and journalism. Um, two <laughs> things that we sometimes treat as interchangeable things, but that are very different things. Um, we talk about them very much. Um, as though they're interchangeable things or the same thing. And they very much are not. And I think it's a worthwhile moment to pause and say, how do we digest, you know, media at large? Um, How did it come to be what it is? What does it say about our culture? I I have thoughts, obviously. (laughs) Um, And I'm going to share some of them with you. So, all right. You know, it's interesting to me that um, we do treat media and journalism um, in this way that treats them as though they're the same thing, though they're two distinct, you know, sort of of entities and in a way, or one is rather a framework or a structure and architecture and another is sort of one of the bricks, you know, in that architecture, or rather a a column or a keystone, right? Like journalism is um, really central to our lives as Americans, as citizens of the world in in general, and media is um, really just a means of conveying messages. And, And so we, in our, you know, colloquial parlance, right, our dialectic as Americans, you know, we talk a lot about the media. You know, one of my favorite human qualities is our adaptability. It's what makes us capable of having the sort of mental flexibility to repeat the same identical behaviors, but to see them as entirely new, like your old grandparent complaining about kids these days. A common refrain throughout history is media bias or the myth of liberal media. And I want to talk about that history a little and how journalism is seated in that framework of social understanding. In America, much like electricity or the railroad. You know, news media is an arterial conduit throughout our nation's history that has shaped our culture. It's shaped migration. It's it's shaped, you know, public views, and it's certainly shaped governance. There are deep roots in the psychology of all of these things. But the social effects are best viewed through, you know, a, a somewhat narrower lens. So, um, 
unlike previous episodes, you know, there'll be no lengthy historical liturgies to follow. I mean, a little, <laughs> you know, you're dealing with at this stage, I, I hope. Instead, I'd like to attack it from three sort of topographical layers. The top and broadest layer being that of epistemology, um, the theory of knowledge, how we understand, what, how we believe, right? What are the basic and common underpinnings of a human mind's means of achieving understanding? Not merely the accumulation of data, nor merely the structural processes by which we formulate thoughts and ideas, but the more sophisticated dance of curation, discernment, distillation, and rejection of data to develop a cohesive narrative. Then the next layer down, a look at media as a concept of communication, even down to the word itself and what that conveys to us within a social dialogue. And then finally, going down another layer to a more specific look at the discipline of journalism, as well as the social responses to journalism and news more broadly in American history. A messy business, to be sure. So that is what is coming up. And I hope that you will hang with me. I'm sure that I have successfully made it sound dull as dishwater <laughs> as I, um, I think I maybe have a habit of doing like sort of gearing you up for some really dry, boring content, but you know, I'm going to deliver it to you in a way that's refreshing and entertaining. And, um, that is also interesting because lest we forget history is crazy. Oh my goodness. There are so many nuances to American history, history in general, of course, but American history specifically, and I'm biased, of course, because I am an American. It's obviously like in my DNA, but holy smokes, we do it better than anyone. Like our level of crazy is just spectacularly dramatic and it's a circus. And and so therefore it's very entertaining and it's fun to look at and talk about, but it's also very revealing and very illuminating in terms of where we are right now and how we continue to repeat the same cycles over and over and over again. And so um, I invite you to come along for the ride. Let's get on this crazy roller coaster together and talk about media and journalism. Mm-hmm. How do we know? It's a really old question. It's it's not a question, I think, that people are even conscious of asking themselves. How do I know this thing, right? How did I come to believe this thing? It's interesting because we all have beliefs. Some of them are common. Some of them are not. <laughs> Some of them conflict violently uh, and others, you know, can be seated comfortably together in, in, you know, relative harmony. And it's a really interesting exercise to me to sort of when you see conflicts in political dialogue in particular, what are the beliefs that are driving those conflicts and, and how did those beliefs come to be arrived at? It, it's a it's a revealing exercise, right? It, and it also sort of forces you um, to put yourself in a position that's not yours, right? Like you kind of remove yourself from your own 
ego as it were and like imagine yourself in a different set of circumstances and and how you would react in those circumstances so it it can be a very useful exercise in terms of broadening the lens sometimes when you're feeling really tense about a thing like why is this happening um you know it, it can be a very useful tool to sort of think about the why of people because there is always a why there just is i mean like it or not you know there there is always a explanation um for people's behavior it's just that we don't know it because we're not psychic <laughs> and people don't even often train themselves to think about these things. They, they react and, and that's the world that we live in, in in many ways and have had for, you know, for forever. So philosophically speaking, there are obviously lots of different um, theories about epistemology. That's why it's a um, branch of its own study. Um the ones that I'm going to focus on are the ones that resonate for me <laughs> um, because this is my podcast and no one can stop me. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, predictably, I'm going to begin with um, David Hume, who was a Scottish uh, philosopher, a very influential thinker and a legit g- genius, uh, as well as being just a big old asshole he was mean and people didn't like him <laughs> he was like popular david hume did he took himself very seriously um be that as it may he was an, an just a, a phenomenal thinker and the um breakthroughs that he had in thinking about thinking um frankly you know very much standing on the shoulders of Rene descartes but you know even so um you know really attacking a um, a social mechanism, you know, through a framework of, you know, process and, and thinking about how your brain is, is pulling in information. So we're kind of, you know, coming up into the enlightenment age when we're having a greater understanding anatomically of how the body works, which is sort of informing our ideas about how the mind works, right? Your eyes, your ears, your nose, you know, your taste, your senses, and, and how that um, data is input into the body and, you know, in a sensory way and, and then how the mind is sort of digesting these things. So we're, we're, you know, burgeoning on this place of like, wow, we're truly un- sort of beginning to understand, you know, humanity and it's sort of like formational ways. And it doesn't sort of rely on this, you know, divinity, this providential hand, like molding and shaping us, right? So, you know, it, it's empowering, I, I'd say, for for intellectuals at that moment. And and um, David Hume deserves much of the credit for, you know, lighting that candle in, in this, you know, specific way. So, but, you know, more to the point, Hume puts forth uh, the idea that knowledge is, you know, gained from our inferences constructed from perceptions and experience in the natural world. Um, the natural world, um, thinking about that in the terms of um, like Spinoza, where it's really just like everything, <laughs> like everything in the world is just like the natural world, you know, as opposed to like, uh, well, no, I mean, human behavior does fall into that. You know, it's just everything, the natural world. Read some Spinoza, you'll get it. Um, it relies on a priori truths. Um, a priori being the a Latin phrase that um, it means sort of assumed to be true. Like it's a first principle. It's like this thing is just true. Okay. So we'll 
well, you know, like, um, again, Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am, you know, right? So it, that's sort of a, an a priori concept. Like, I am. I can think about me and why I can think because I am. It's a priori. Um, so again, Hume's idea relies upon a priori truths about uh, the objective nature of reality. And certainly metaphysicists may find those a priori concepts or assumptions like debatable. Um, but for the rest of us, it remains a sound link in our social understanding. Like the earth is round, right? We we sort of all take that as at this stage culturally as an a priori concept. Mm, or do we? <laughs> um, many of you know, I have a particular like um, peccadillo about that like flat earthers that just make me insane i just don't understand them and it makes me so angry and at the like educational system and people's like willful ignorance like willful ignorance makes me so cranky anyway that's kind of the building block here right so we assume that there are things that happen in the world that we like digest in a, a common way. And, and those things have primarily to do with like the physical world. And, and you could, you know, you could pick that apart in some ways, like, um, you know, colorblindness, um, for example, right? Like a person who's colorblind doesn't necessarily digest the world in the same, you know, physical sensory ways that a person who does not have colorblindness. So, you know, you could, you know, argue that their reality is like filtered in a different way and therefore is different. But no, right? Because the person who's colorblind is sort of self-aware of their colorblindness. Like they're cognizant of the fact that the way that the, you know, the rods and the cones in their eyes are processing that input of light on the spectrum is not calculating, right? It, it, it's at certain frequencies. Like they have a a self-awareness of that condition and therefore they still understand that red is red it's just that they don't see red or blue or whatever part of the spectrum colorblindness exists on i don't know if it's like the same for everybody you get it right okay so building upon that right like hume's sort of explaining right like how we come to like have knowledge and and sort of like function you know in reality in these sort of intuitive ways and building upon that, Bertrand Russell um, comes along in the 20th century. Bertrand Russell was a, an astounding, wonderful man who was a, a logician, um, I, which is delicious, like a person who can make a career out of logic, like a Vulcan. It's freaking awesome. But Bertrand Russell um, comes up with a concept that he refers to as neutral monism. And I love this concept because it, I feel like it just really acutely identifies a um, an important nuance to how we discern, right? How we calculate data in our mind. So the way he describes it is as follows, uh, quote, the whole duality of mind and matter is a mistake. There is only one kind of stuff out of which the world is made. And this stuff is called mental in one arrangement, physical in the other. I love it. It's so poignant. First of all, let's just congratulate Bertrand Russell on the total legitimization of the academic use of the term stuff. <laughs> like, that's perfect. Thank you, Bertrand Russell, for allowing that word to like convey the full nuance of its meaning in that it's, you know, embryonic, right? Like stuff. It's just like what it is, this building block thing. And to his point, right, there's 
you know, no distinction between our physical processing of what's going on outside of us and what's going on outside of us. But the processing itself has its own, you know, kind of codification. So that there speaks to how, you know, again, we're sort of taking in information and like understanding it. And then we're sort of in our own minds, right? Like automatically moving it into categories. And then that's freaking fascinating. And and then in in my view, sort of is a descriptor of how like we are are like the core of our existence is sort of in the stories that we tell ourselves. <laughs> like it's this narrative that we weave just to like get by in the world. Right. And in, in Bertrand Russell's terms, dismissal of a priori principles lends itself to breakdown in common understanding, the consequences of which can be quite severe. For instance, let's look at the a priori principle that Black people are people. For many people, even today, <laughs> you find a sometimes faint, sometimes implied, sometimes openly stated, like, are they though? Which, you know, results in a permissive state of denial and can roll out into, you know, policy and legislative choices that then marginalize those people even further. Like it's not a, I don't, I, at this stage of the game, right, here in, in the 2022nd rotation of the earth around the sun, as far as we've been counting, like no one can, you know, make the statement with any sort of credibility that a black person is not a person. <laughs> and yet the ideas that are attached to that are still um, woven into American culture. And I know I took that to like the severe place, like really, really fast. But the point of that is merely to sort of demonstrate to you um, or to myself, perhaps mm, what how the mechanism of epistemological processing, right, can be manipulated or shaped, right, implicit bias being the most notable feature of this. And and I'll give you an example from myself. I am probably you've intuited um, left of left. Like I'm, I'm a very, I'm like, I'm almost, almost like radically progressive and I really don't like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> like I really don't like Hillary Clinton and I never have liked Hillary Clinton. I only as a, as a sort of like individual politician, not like attached to any of this sort of like scandal around her. Cause I think she and her husband, both who, you know, are career politicians who play the game, um, and have been victims of the game as much as they've been um, perpetrators of the game. So, you know, I have no sympathy for either one of them in terms of the political difficulties in which they found themselves, you know, over the years, quite honestly. And, you know, though I would have vastly preferred Hillary Clinton be president over the other one who ultimately won, you know, the whole email thing, you know, I'm not gonna lie to you, they got me. I was like, that's messed up in that moment. I think, you know, that implicit bias that I have about career politicians and, you know, it was a self-affirmation of already held beliefs. And there was nothing there that wasn't really common across, you know, a broad um, sector of career civil servants. My point is that there was an effectiveness in a campaign of disinformation that attached itself to my own unconscious bias. It didn't affect my vote. And I don't know that it, you know, it went so far as to affect my opinion of her, but it affirmed, you know, my opinion of her. And I think, and I can imagine a person who, you know, not as progressive, who disliked her as much as I did, 
but who was more apt to swing their vote. Right. Like there you can kind of see the one plus one is two scenario where like, you know, if it affected me, <laughs> who's already like Ugh, this bitch, you know, then what about other people who are legitimately like trying to make a choice? You know, it, it's uh, it, it's a, a manipulation of the epistemological processes. It's it's shrewdly done and <laughs> quite terrifying, in my opinion. Where discord exists in our epistemic landscape, the conflict often is a lot more sophisticated than it may appear at first glance. In certain circumstances, that conflict doesn't represent a difference of opinion so much as a basic disagreement about the nature of a person's reality. And I think this is what characterizes religious differences is the most sort of, you know, textbook example. So when you have two conflicting realities that's not that's a really difficult landscape to traverse in terms of persuading a person right you're 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 crumbling a person's reality in some ways if you're trying to persuade them to a worldview that is diametrically opposed to your own and i you know that's that's obviously that's a really you know hard thing to do so one wonders solution. <laughs> I don't have one. <laughs> and also that's not really the point of this, you know, this series of, of, of episodes. I, you know, what, what I'm driving at here is that, you know, there is a process by which we, you know, formulate our beliefs. It is affected by the experiences that are around us. Those experiences are not sort of taken at the, the always the objective truth of, of what they are we could even debate that objective truth is something that you know exists in a meaningful way right but we have to use it as a practical concept otherwise we'd all just be floating bubbles bumping into one another i mean like that's what we are but never mind all that <laughs> we can't live that way <laughs> right like you can't buy toilet paper if you're just a floating bubble bumping around in other people you need toilet paper like you get it. We have to live. We have to work. We have to feed our children. We have to survive. So we have to have a kind of agreed upon reality in which we can intersect and do those things. And, you know, that's hard to do when there's a million bajillion different universes like all existing, you know, simultaneously together. It's a really complex dance. It's a miracle that it's happening at all. <laughs> it's crazy. So yeah, that's that's going to be the first bit. Just kind of thinking about thinking. How are we thinking? How do we believe? How do we then, you know, direct those beliefs into our actions and our daily lives? And um, in the next bit, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the idea of media as a whole. Like, what is it? What do we think about? Like, you know, of course, that whole like liberal media, the news media, like that's um, that's the main focus, right? But media as a whole. And why is it that we contextualize it in American society and perhaps, you know, the world round? I don't know. I don't live in the world round. I live in America. And in America, I observe that 
the quote media almost exclusively refers to like the cable news sphere. I want to talk about that. So um, I hope you enjoyed this bit and uh, I hope that it was sufficiently amusing for you. Um, in the next bit, um, we're going to talk a lot about William Randolph Hearst and, and his whole family. Cause wow, it's really a fascinating character and, and a very, um, a really interesting sort of, uh, formative moment in American history. So tune in. I think I predict you will enjoy it because there's a lot of drama. I love it. I love the drama. All right. Thank you for listening. Um, if you would like to reach out or contact me in any way, um, I have an email address that's Susie makes a podcast, S-U-Z-I makes a podcast at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at Susie makes a podcast. So until next time.